0: Welcome back to the London Tech Insider podcast. This week I speak to Nicholas Tollevey. He currently works as a freelance software developer and has also been active in open source projects as a previous Google open source peer bonus winner. Before starting a career in tech, he trained at the Royal College of Music with tuba as his first instrument. He also briefly worked as a school teacher, which helps explain his interest in using tech for education. For example, Nicholas developed Moo, a beginner-friendly text editor. He was also involved in developing the BBC Microbit, a project which gave a programmable microcontroller to 1 million school children in the UK. A final project Nicholas has undertaken with an educational theme is the London Python Code Dojo, where participants collaborate in small teams to solve a problem and compassionately review each other's efforts. In the conversation that follows, we explore all of these projects and more. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode. So, I guess, like, the first broad theme of questions would be about uh, your journey uh, into programming from quite a non-conventional background uh, in music. Um, so, we already uh, sort of discussed... Um, that you played the tuba but i was wondering yeah. uh is it quite a well-trodden path to come over from music into the tech space or uh, was were you almost quite alone to you do you feel in your journey
1: that's a really interesting question um and i think the common answer and i think there's some truth in it is that uh, musicians um make Good coders or good coders have an affinity with music because um, there's such a lot of overlap in the the skills and the mindset that you need, um, the discipline of practising. Um, you know, if you've learned music theory, which I know you have uh, done, you know uh, it's uh, a, a similar frame of mind to perhaps learning the syntax and uh, structures of coding as well. The fact that you have to apply these um, semi-formal systems to problems in a creative sort of a way—if if you're a software engineer, you're you're, uh, you're 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 being very creative, I believe—is it, similar to being a composer um there are an awful lot of overlaps um in in terms of uh, the way folks organize their time um the way people uh you know Uh, are always learning is perhaps another important part of this you know you're always learning new pieces of music um and you're always learning new tech because that's the exciting thing about the world that we live in is that uh, you know in 10 years time we have no idea what we're going to be doing so uh the best thing you can do to prepare yourself for the future is actually learn how to learn and to learn effectively and efficiently and to apply that learning in a way that's valuable and useful for people Mm. so Um, that's uh, that's a very similar um, musical mindset so I guess the other thing you asked me whether I was alone in this Um, certainly not and I think because uh, music is such an awful job in terms of pay and uh, job security and working conditions that uh, plenty of musicians uh, and I'm one of them Uh, find themselves thinking surely there's something else I can do and I can still enjoy music uh, playing at a high level but perhaps not professionally Um, so uh, that sort of hints at perhaps how I also got into coding as well
0: Mm -hmm. and uh, so you've kind of touched on a lot of similarities there between uh, programming and music but uh, at the same time do you think there are any Uh, major differences uh, and is there almost uh, stuff that you felt that you'd wish uh, you had perhaps like a background you did compute you studied computer science formally or actually uh, you feel that you've managed to get by just fine without this very formal introduction
1: yeah so I mean it's worth pointing out that I, I actually do have an MSc in computing so um, I, <laughs> I, I have had some some training but um, I think the difference is the one that sprung to mind as you were asking the question is that I believe the musical world and the culture of music is far more mature um, than the world of computing and computer science and that's I, I'm not saying that a sort of a criticism it's because we've only been doing programming in any way that we might recognize since the early 60s and we're still learning about well how do we do this sort of stuff we're at the cuneiform stage of writing as it were when it comes to working with computers we're we're at that inflection point where where computers have have arrived you know i'm old enough to remember they're not being computers ubiquitous and um you know, my my dad was a head teacher. He brought a BBC Micro home in the in the nineteen eighties, and that's my first um, experience with a computer. Whereas someone your age or my kids' age, they've you know, computers have always been uh, a part of your life. So um there's been enough time in music for there to be revolutions and counter-revolutions and different schools and um you know all of that sort of stuff over the i don't know thousand years of western art music history that that you or i might learn about when we're doing musical studies um and yet maybe uh 60 or 70 years of computer science um so it feels to me like it's still uh We're still in one corner of a virgin white snowfield, if you see what I mean. And there's plenty Mm -hmm. of space for us to stomp around and make a mess.
0: On this topic, like one thing that kind of surprises me is that there's not more of um, a formal science of sort of software design and what the best way to write readable and understandable code is necessarily. Um,
1: But... But that's like saying uh, that, Okay, so here's another interesting part of this is that uh, Mm. we call it software engineering and it makes it sound like it's a hard scientific subject. But actually, I think and and many agree uh, and there's research places like MIT, for instance, that uh, are looking at the way the brain processes code. I've got a friend of mine at the moment writing a book um, about this, Uh, but it's, it's more like literature. It's you're you're engaging a different part of your brain, one that's more akin to um, to writing words and expressing yourself in a a literary sort of way, rather than some sort of formal mathematical sort of a way. So to say that there is a best way to write code is like trying to claim there's a best way to write poetry. Um, There are certainly good ways. Um, It depends what you want um, as well, I guess. And and we, we have so many languages to choose from as well, which I guess demonstrates the point. I don't know, different people prefer writing code in different sorts of ways. You know, Python's all about readability. Um, you know, C is all about performance. Uh, Lisp is, well, all about parentheses. You know, it's all of that sort of stuff.
0: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that kind of what you're saying then reminds you of, I think there's quite a famous quote on the topic about uh, what good code means to different people I can't remember who said it but he was talking about good code reading like prose um I don't know if you've yeah. heard that comment before in the sense that you could just read down read down it um sequentially and it does that point you're saying about that it's firing up the same areas of the brain when you read code as when you read literature also uh, perhaps, yeah that resonates with me that that kind of I can relate yeah, to that it-
1: it, it it's Understand also that. if if you think about Python the way or in other languages the way we just indent anyway for neatness that's like you know when you read a poem um, pi- poems are laid out in a particular sort of way for sort of readability's sake um, there's a quote and I can find it very quickly I think if I go here um, from Alan Kay who invented object oriented programming uh, and it, the quote is the computer is simply an instrument whose music Is ideas, Um, but the music is not in the piano. Uh, And and, and that to me um, really uh, resonates because uh, to be a good musician, you need to have the two sides of your brain, the left and the right, collaborating together. You need all the technique and all the analytical skill to be able to read and play and analyse the piece of music you're performing. But at the same time, you need the emotional side to actually make it a performance, you know, it's, it's not just playing notes. There's a whole kind of, uh, you know, how the performer acts on stage, their whole persona in the performance and, you know, blah, 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 blah all of that sort of stuff. And I guess he's saying a similar sort of a thing. You need to um, not only be fantastic at writing code or, you know, um, some ultra-rational uh, sort of person, uh, it takes a blend of skills to make a good engineer as well um and uh, i certainly agree with that
0: <laughs> mm. do you think that generally uh, we're doing enough to like that perhaps computer science has a bit of an image problem and that it's not attracting it's attracting people with uh, the hard engineering skills but perhaps isn't doing enough to attract the people with these softer skills uh and uh yeah the ways of uh, what you were describing earlier, that yeah, it's not its not necessarily what we expect, this type of skill set that you need for programming. So do you think we're doing enough to attract the right people, I guess?
1: So uh, I-, I think programming has an image problem. Uh, I would agree with you. Uh, it-, it has a problem because uh, your Hollywood hacker, you know, sat in a dark room wearing a hoodie, typing at a million miles an hour is what people think coders do and that is blatantly wrong mm-hmm. um so there is that image problem in uh, in in the wider society you get um high profile coders like zuckerberg for instance uh who is uh, having a terrible month <laughs> uh for all sorts of reasons because he he appears to be an immoral thoughtless Uh, technical sort of god really um, which makes him inhuman really um, in a sense that's how he's being painted Uh, and there's a danger that you know coders are seen as these uh, you know crossword solving on steroids chess grandmaster type people when blatantly that's wrong Um, I've read lots of other people's code and I can tell you not all of it is great to read Um, you know they there are different levels of uh, of attainment and achievement as coders, as people mature and so on and so forth. I think that folks like Anna, who was on last time, um, do a huge amount of very positive work, work that is often not recognised, work that needs to be front and centre, um, work that helps us to uh, bring... People from um, groups that are not usually represented in, in the technology world. Sadly, most programmers I know are like me, they're white university educated men. Um, and uh, we have a because of the accident of our birth, as it were, we've been brought up in a particular sort of way with certain advantages. And uh, often we're, we're, we don't see them. Um, or perhaps don't realise that uh, that other people from other backgrounds might have a more of a difficult route to, to getting to where we've got to. And I'm not saying for any for an instance that it's dead easy if you look like me or sound like me. Uh, but I think what people like Anna uh, and the PSF are doing is highlighting the fact that uh, diversity is a strength, and diversity uh, necessitates compassion. And tolerance and thoughtfulness, and uh, that is often missing <laughs> uh, in the technical world uh, because of the kind of hard engineering uh, background that perhaps people have. Uh, and by that, I don't mean having a hard engineering background means you're going to be, pardon my French, an asshole. It means that you know the skill set uh, isn't the touchy feely sort of stuff. That's the stuff that's not. Uh, emphasised as you were saying so um, yeah interesting times I think that that might be one of the ways in which computing develops significantly over the next few years is that uh, you know there is this reaction against all this hard stuff um, and the touchy-feely things are going to become more important as they should do and you think... it's a blend, again we're back to this it's a blend
0: Do you think perhaps it's part of the solution I know uh, you do a lot of work with um, teaching children uh, and to code, and also uh, helping them to become interested in computing generally, the, yeah, yeah, part of the solution of getting a broader range of people involved in tech and people not just from the hard engineering background could be uh, to get uh, a broader range of uh, students interested in a at a younger age. Um, Yeah. Is there a link there?
1: Um, I think that uh, historically um, software engineering was seen as something that women do because it was like uh, the typing pool, which is a very sexist sort of attitude to have. But the first programmers were famously mostly women. And it was only until the 1980s with the advent of the home computer and people res- realized that actually the people with the buying decisions were often men, and if we appeal to them and what have you, that uh that it became a a, a men's thing and a boys' thing. And so we have this disparity now between, you know, um uh the, the you know, just sort of the gender uh of, of folks involved in, in, in coding is is deeply problematic. Um, you know. Half the world is generally female and half is male, yet uh, I would say it's something like 80 or 90% of all coders are are men still, even in, in this day, um, which means that uh, absolutely, from an early age, people need to be able to see that uh, software engineering or having a job where your job is to do computery things is something that's open to everybody, and it doesn't really matter what your skill set is you've still got something that you can contribute because not everybody who engages with the computer as their work is necessarily a coder. Um, There are folks who um, are looking at the more psychological side of things and things like user experience, um, interface design, and things like that. Uh, And yet there are others who are designing chips (laughs) uh, kind of at the other end of the spectrum. And so there's room that we we have a broad church, as it were, under the umbrella of computing. And so there's room for for lots of people to, to find their niche um Mm. and education is is absolutely key um if you want to change the world you know train the next generation um Mm. in a particular way um so yes absolutely
0: yeah the um sort of to jump back to something you said earlier in the talk and sorry to jump but i i just really wanted to ask it uh, because i thought it'd be interesting so you were talking about uh sort of learning to learn throughout your career um and this was going back to the parallels with music that you're always yep. uh, continuously learning and uh so I, I was quite interested um since you've uh you know been programming since the turn of the century um what <laughs> i'm sorry to make you feel old again so <laughs> oh,
1: but, i feel ancient now
0: <laughs> but um, what um, what sort of where things are today like would you have expected this is where things have um have got or like what what surprises you and what doesn't that that would be really interesting to hear about
1: um okay uh that's a really good question um i think when i started My professional life as a coder, which would be in the early 2000s, 2002, 2003. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Wikipedia didn't exist. Uh, eBay and Google were a thing, but they were kind of not the thing that they are now. Um, The ubiquity of mobile phones. um, and I mean smartphones. I mean, obviously, we had mobile phones back in the uh, previous century, as you put it. Uh, but uh, you know, they were like carrying around a breeze block, and uh, they were literally just a phone. But the fact that the fact that we have devices now that are small computers that look like something from a science fiction movie, uh, Star Trek from the nineteen sixties, sort of thing, is is both cool and terrifying uh, in equal measure. Um, I think. Uh, I think that it's one of the wonderful things about our industry is that there is always something new uh, Mm -hmm. to investigate and it keeps me interested and stimulated. I'm that sort of a person. Uh, I like finding new things out and and learning things. There are some things where I look at them and I think, uh, this is crazy. Uh, Who would have possibly thought of this? So, um, and I guess to my junior developer self, I would say, don't be surprised if the same old thing keeps coming round, and then the same old reaction keeps happening. Each time it happens, each time there's a swing of this pendulum, it happens in a slightly different way. But the underlying archetype, as it were, is always the same. Um, And so I think I've been around two or three cycles of this now. And is
0: this kind of maybe hype cycles of things? Or uh, this what, is very about? much
1: like hype cycles. So here's, yeah. a, good, here's a good one. So uh, I don't know if you remember Second Life. It was this thing around, I don't know, 2006, 2007. And it was going to be this online 3D virtual world where we were all going to live in this thing. And IBM were building universities there. And it was the place to go before social media really exploded. And... Well, you you shook your head when I said, do you remember Second Life? Nobody remembers that now, apart from old people like me. Um, And I can't help but think that things like, um, well, you know, Google's announcement of Meta and the Metaverse and what have you is going to be a a similar sort of story. Um, Things Mm -hmm. like Bitcoin. um, I'm going to say something now that is going to be like Marmite. You know, half the world thinks Bitcoin's amazing, or the technical world anyway, and the other half thinks it's a terrible idea. I'm in the terrible idea camp. Um, mm. And I, I see um, various movements throughout the, my time interacting with technology um, that have promised the world and have ended up just being solutions looking for a problem. Um, now, I know all the Bitcoin people are going to say, Oh yes, but blah, 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 blah. But uh, honestly, all the things blockchain, uh, to perhaps be more accurate, or Bitcoin claims to solve have already been solved in other technologies uh, in a far more efficient way. And um, mm. it's just Bitcoin feels like a bit of a Frankenstein's monster, really. Um, but there we go. I don't know. Yeah. I'm happy to be proven wrong. And I quite enjoy being proven wrong as well. That's another entertaining part of being in such a fast moving industry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely what you're describing, uh, AI fits into that camp, because obviously there have been oh, so man. many Where cycles of hype. <laughs> um, and also the idea, you know, this is an area that lots of people are going into, And um, there are kind of much simpler solutions to these sorts of problems uh, that you don't need a neural network to solve. You can just solve a problem, Um, say, with a simple decision rule. Um, uh, You know, if then, basically three or four if thens can do basically as well as a full neural network, but they're also very uh, interpretable and, you know, easy to uh, explain to anybody what's going on so
1: yeah
0: and changeable uh, yeah.
1: that's yeah, the important yeah. thing uh, I, I can it. edit that code those conditional statements um, it's hard mm. to edit a neural network uh, my msc my dissertation was on um, evolutionary algorithms and neural networks so i was evolving neural networks so not doing backprop or anything like that but uh well i, I had done that because obviously that's a kind of a core part of being of understanding neural networks but uh by evolving the uh, the weights and other Um, kind of knobs that you twiddle when you're uh, um, connecting nodes, you can actually evolve neural networks to do some really quite cool things. But um, Mm. the the AI hype cycle, I think it's every every 20 to 30 years, um, you know, tech's going to save us and it's going to be amazing. And I I don't want to um, belittle the amazing advances that have happened. And some of it is incredible. Um, But at the same time, uh, i can't help but feel and i think you do too that some of it is a little bit uh, uh hypey. and i mm-hmm. think that your example is telling as well um I, i'm gonna uh, th- there's a friend of mine esteve who uh, he's he researches self-driving cars and uh esteve and i had a chat last year when we met when the pandemic wasn't so bad uh about how he does his uh his testing i said well you can't really write unit tests for a neural network uh, which is what you're using and, and how do you test a self-driving car anyway and what do you do you sort of put the key in the ignition and run and then uh, you know see what happens because if it goes wrong it's going to go wrong spectacularly badly and obviously they use simulations and things like that mm-hmm. um, and so I said to him you know well tell me what's the future of uh, self-driving cars are we going to be in that world where we sit down and say you know Take me to Mayfair, please, taxi driver. And this robotic voice takes you, you know, says, Of course, sir, mm-hmm. and takes you there. Um, and he sort of looked me in the eye and he said, Look, if you want to solve the transport problems, invest in public transport. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's going to do more good than spending bazillions on self driving cars, mm. um, which is going to get more cars on the road. And it's going to be, uh, you know, um, a lot more difficult to get places if you get people yeah. out of cars. And using public transport, our roads are more unclogged. People get where they need to faster, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of a—I I see his point. It's a balancing act because, of course, sometimes the bus doesn't go to where you where you want it to, or the train doesn't. And sometimes you uh, you um, you actually quite appreciate the fact that you don't have to drive into London every day because somebody's going to take you on a train. So um, mm. I don't know. Yeah, so, that's and it
0: kind of reminds me as well. Uh, I mean, everybody quotes Steve Jobs, but. Uh, quite a good one is the fact that you just have to start with the user problem and work backwards from there rather than yes. going from the technology and working, finding a problem to fit it. Uh, you had yes. a very succinct way of phrasing that.
1: Yes. But there's also a great video of Jobs who uh, it's from a few months into his return to Apple and clearly an engineer um has had his project cancelled and in their kind of town hall meeting stands up and says basically you know you don't know what you're talking about Steve you know blah 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 and you could hear the kind of sharp intake of breath as the employees sort of see that he was um, you know gunning for uh, taking down jobs and jobs in about five minutes um, beautifully says what you've just said but well in that jobs type way you know there's the sort of reality distortion field turned up to 11 in that talk i <laughs> recommend you find it it's it's very good very good
0: yeah yeah Prop- i can um have it in the show notes as well yes so
1: yeah I'll, fi- I'll find it and send you the link.
0: listening yeah that'd be awesome um and yeah something else like on this topic of hype uh that um it might be sort of uh, out of what you're comfortable commenting on but do you think Generally, there might be a tech bubble at the moment that there's um, a huge amount of investment um, and there's, yeah, things are very overvalued. So we might be sort of repeating uh, some of the mistakes of the past. Or,
1: I what are your feelings don't there? know. I-, I think we might have a tech readjustment. <laughs> Whether it's, you know, and people will realise that, you know, or not, as the case may be, things like blockchain or AI or whatever, there's a lot of hype and uh, it, it all falls flat on its face. Whether that's a bubble that's going to pop, I'm not sure, because, um, you know, I've been involved in um, in education efforts. Um, so the BBC Microbit was something that I was involved in. So a million of these devices were delivered to UK school children, 11-year-olds, um, and they all ran MicroPython and things like that. So I was involved in that project, and the kind of the headline was: in ten years' time, the EU think we're going to be short by several hundreds of thousands of qualified coders to do the work that will be needed. So, in another sense, it feels like we're only just getting started. Um, and this goes back to our point um, earlier on in the conversation about getting people into technology and helping folks realise that it's not just a stereotype. There's there's a place in the world of technology for, for, for everybody, and there should be. And those of us in technology should do everything we can, like Anna, in in making this a safe space and a welcoming space. So those people who want to and have something to contribute, um, find their niche and flourish and find fulfilment. That's, that's important. We'll all benefit them.
0: Mm. And so... You brought up the BBC Microbit project, so that makes my job as an interviewer a bit easier because that's a nice transition. Um, Yeah. So uh, could you sort of summarize um, at a high level perhaps what MicroPython is and how this uh, links with this BBC Microbit project?
1: Yeah, okay. So MicroPython is the genius invention of a friend of mine, Um, called Damien George uh, who's now based back in his native uh, Australia in Melbourne but uh, he was um, actually uh, in Cambridge he was a postdoc doing physics and uh, so he uh, did a bunch of robotics projects as a as a university student, and um, ran a very successful Kickstarter campaign for creating a version of Python that ran on microcontrollers. So these are you know very very small computers on a chip. We're looking at you know having just sixteen k of memory, things like that. Uh, but yet Damien, because he is an exceptionally gifted software engineer, managed to get Python to work in such uh, resource-constrained computing environments. So that's MicroPython. And Damien, uh, for the sake of this story, is in Cambridge. Uh, The BBC wanted to uh, recreate the glory days of the BBC Micro. Um, And so uh, the MicroBit project was uh, created. It was a kind
0: of- Sorry, the BBC Micro uh, is the computer system uh, that you mentioned right at the start. Yes, uh, that was rolled out in the eighties. Uh, that ran on basic and things yes, like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It doesn't help that we have a BBC Micro and a BBC micro Bits, thus proving that you know, in computing, naming is uh, is a problem that we all have. <laughs> um, so, uh, th- yes, the BBC Microcomputer from the nineteen eighties. I think the BBC wanted to recreate that. They could see that uh, coding education was was a thing that was important, and that they could contribute to the UK's uh, culture in, in that sort of a way, so thus meeting their kind of remit. Um, so microbit was born and uh, they said that they wanted um, the microbit to be able to run amongst other languages, Python. And uh, being a UK based Python person and linked with the Python Software Foundation, I suggested that the PSF got involved um, so with the blessing of the board, uh, I got in touch with the BBC and uh, the PSF were to produce educational resources. Uh, but halfway through the project, um, the person who was going to produce the Python interpreter for the micro bit um, dropped out uh, or said that they couldn't do it. And it just so happens that the person who worked for Arm, the chip manufacturer who were designing the board, uh, was the next door neighbor of Damien and we just happened to have a conversation you know one of these kind of chance things uh and um within a week of um of johnny from arm uh, giving damien his neighbor a test board uh for the microbit uh damien had it up and running and we were off um so uh yeah uh, that's the microbit um that's how python got on the microbit and um uh, whenever it was five or six years ago, every year seven student in the UK got one.
0: Mm.
1: How many of them stayed in their boxes or in the teachers' drawers or uh, wherever, I-, I couldn't possibly say. Um, but uh, they are still used an awful lot. Uh, there's a Microbit 2 that's out, and um, the Microbit Foundation that was set up. Um, to keep the project running is doing marvelous work in the uh, education uh, python in the coding education world
0: yeah, so something you kind of touched on right at the end there what uh were the findings I guess of this project or was was there anything sort of measuring the impact and uh how did it go once once it was out there in the real world
1: i I honestly don't know, and believe me, I asked. Um, mm. but it wasn't shared. Um, mm. but, um, I know that Mew, which is the goofy code editor that I wrote as part of this project so that people had a native editor that worked with, that was beginner friendly, that worked with the micro bit. Um, that's been downloaded over a million times. Um, mm. so lots of people are using it. Um, but the other side of that coin is that my own child, children, um, Sam, my middle son, was in year seven at the time. He should have got a micro bit, um, mm. but their uh, computing teacher um, had them all in a box at the bottom of his uh, <laughs> cupboard um, and wasn't going to use them. So, I mean, I guess it depends on the school. I think yeah. what it proves, though, is that uh, teachers are key to this. Teachers are very mm. important people, and investment in supporting teachers in Uh, in helping them to teach coding and computing skills and so on and so forth is an essential um, piece of the jigsaw puzzle that i don't believe we're anywhere near solving
0: quite an interesting thing as well that you know um speaking about uh teaching programming at schools is that I'm almost in my own personal learning journey uh, I also came to programming quite late and I never was taught uh, any sort of coding really at school um, growing up in the 21st century and I don't think it is changing very quickly either so um,
1: I, I think there is a problem I think part of the problem is how people see coders because a lot of teachers aren't coders they're teachers if they were coders often they could triple their salary by becoming coders which uh um you know it, i've seen happen you know a teacher who has found themselves to have an affinity with coding uh, by teaching it has realized that they could earn a lot more money outside of school so that's what they go and do who wouldn't do that mm-hmm. that's kind of just pure economics um but the the way the education system is set up The resources that are being given to teachers are subpar. The way I see programming taught in schools is very much like the world's worst music lesson. Um, You know, this is, I guess, what I mean earlier on in the conversation about how the music world is perhaps a lot more mature through age than the coding world. In that we're only just starting to think about how might we teach or uh, be good pedagogues uh, as in practicing pedagogy that the the art of teaching how does one do that when it comes to computers Um, uh, helping people engage with computers so that they are uh, empowered by computers rather than just consumers tapping away on their mobile phones Um, that isn't happening Uh, whereas the music world uh, as a former music teacher I've got you know over a thousand years of music education to draw upon um, you know mm. example being as you will know of being a former chorister do re mi far solati do the first letters of a latin phrase that were used by monks to warm up their voices yeah. uh, way back in the medieval time when you know um, the choral tradition of uh, cathedral choir music in england was was being born of which you know you're a benefactor mm. um you know um This is why I think, you know, my lazy engineer's hat is uh, surely somebody, uh, you know, makes me wonder, surely somebody has thought of this sort of thing before. And that's why I think it's important that, you know, computing educators could learn a lot by looking at how arts education works, how music education works, how mathematics education works. Uh, You know, people who've been doing this for centuries (laughs) <laughs> have probably got some good techniques and skills and pointers that could be borrowed and stolen and adapted and adopted and uh, changed to fit uh, the the purpose of teaching computing whatever that might be um, but we're not there yet
0: yeah to uh, go back as well so you mentioned Mew uh, which yeah. was the um, editor, the text editor that you created so It'd be cool to hear about some of the design decisions uh, that uh, you put into place to make this friendly for kids and also what what's wrong perhaps with uh, existing editors, you know, uh, yeah. r- written by software engineers for other software engineers. Yeah.
1: Okay. So this is... <laughs> Tell me if I'm going on too much i'm just going to get on my soapbox now <laughs> uh-huh. so um so mu was created uh, as a um, how hard can it be sunday afternoon software project because the browser-based editor that i was building as part of the microbit project worked but it wasn't what every teacher wanted and there were limitations to just having it in the browser so that's the thing that started you um, as for design decisions, we, we have this sort of, uh, what's the word, precept perhaps, uh, or one commandment, not 10, just one, uh, that basically says if you're technical enough to want to ask for an advanced feature in Mu, you're probably too advanced to be using Mew. Mm. Um, and we see Mu as the toddling steps. Uh, in programming. Um, And uh, mu is uh, something that you graduate from, hopefully very quickly. But what we've tried to do is distill the essence of what a code editor is, and make it um, and put it behind an accessible user interface. um, So that it's very clear what you can do at any one moment in time and uh, and then do it in such a way that when students actually see a VS code or, heavens forbid, VI or Emacs or, you know, some PyCharm-type interface, which, let's face it, is complicated or very Spartan and you need to know what's under the hood to make it work properly, uh, mm. these things will look more familiar. For instance, Mu has a debugger. Um, it's not a very advanced debugger, and some might even argue, and I'd probably agree with them, it's uh, not a very good debugger. But it's good enough for a beginner, and when they go and see Visual Studio Code's debugger, they will see that there is a step through, step into, step over, stop, continue buttons that remind them of what was going on in Mu. So they've kind of built up the conceptual scaffolding by using Mew. Um, that's met them where they are, and Mu has taken them on a journey so that when they get to Visual Studio Code or whatever they end up using, um that editor doesn't look like a 747 flight deck when you sit down in front of it with like bells and whistles and buttons all over the place. It actually makes sense because you've encountered something similar. And so yeah, Mu is Mu is a graduation step, really. That's how yeah. you see
0: it. Yeah. And can you uh Perhaps were there any more design decisions apart from the uh, oh, debugger? So okay, with uh, so... you can really, really go for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, what we learned very quickly was go watch students or beginner programs. I and mean, this is aimed for beginners of all ages, uh, adults and students. So watch these people as they are all at sea with what you think is this magnificent beginner's editor and watch them crash and burn. Um, ask the teachers or the people supporting them as to what they want. So a classic example is uh, in schools, often the uh, the projectors used in classrooms are like 10 years old and they don't work, or if it's a bright day and the sun's shining in such a particular way, you can't see what's being projected and blah, 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 blah. blah. And so uh, we have themes in new. There's a dark theme and there's a light theme and there's a high contrast theme. And teachers, uh, when we did that, Found that amazing because all of a sudden kids could actually see what was being projected when they wanted to use mute as a pedagogical tool. As a let me show you me writing some code, blah 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 blah. Mm. The other thing to do with that is that we have zoom buttons as well, um, so that uh, when presenting, uh, you can increase the size of the font um, significantly very quickly uh, when I showed that to a room of teachers for the first time I'd spoken to them like a month before and kind of got their greatest hits list of things we wished a code editor did for people working in the classroom and I implemented this zoom thing which I mean let's face it can't it be more than eight lines of code to be honest with you It took no more than half an hour to do uh, and I demonstrated it and there was this <gasps> Sort of intake of breath that's amazing and who would have thought that just having zoom buttons on an editor would make all the difference to classroom practitioners um yeah but it does and yeah. it also helps for kids with special educational needs who might have uh, visual uh you know uh, vision related impairments um you know all of this sort of stuff um mm. so and, honest, and that's another aspect of this as well, is that we've spent a lot of time working with people who are who are blind, for instance, and making sure that screen readers work well with Mew so that the code editor will work for everybody because education isn't just for able-bodied people or kids who can afford things. It's got to work for everybody. You know, education is a right, not something that, um, that you have to pay for, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah.
0: I was going to say, like, uh, something like VS Code could also do with the... Uh zoom feature because so often you are uh sharing your screen on like a microsoft teams yeah. call or a zoom call and uh your pet that's how where you do pair programming in the age of coronavirus and yes, so <laughs> yeah so often you're just uh you've got your face in your screen trying to see what's on their screen for example yeah. if the the sizes that's don't quite match up
1: there is, um, uh, I've got some friends on the VS Code team. Um, uh, there is a feature that uh, uh, that allows you to do that, to share. In mm. fact, there are several ways of doing it, but I think a, a recently shipped version of VS Code allows you to uh, connect your session with a colleague's sessions So oh, good, um, you don't yeah. have to see their screen. You're You're using your... Editor, It's a bit like an Etherpad, but for code. I don't know if you've ever mm. used Etherpad before or a Google Doc where many people are editing the same Oh, thing. yeah. Mm. Um, so that's that's a pretty cool feature.
0: Yeah, uh, that's perhaps what's great about VS Code, actually, uh, is the sort of ecosystem of the extensions. Uh, yes,
1: the plugins and things, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of approaching the end, and there was kind of one other big topic I wanted to ask you about. Uh, which was the Python code, the London Python code dojo. Um, So it's quite uh, a really interesting sounding concept. And I uh, would really like to hear about how this idea was formed and uh, what your experiences were of running this. So could you maybe start by explaining what the, uh, the code dojo is?
1: Okay, so um, I would say uh, a code dojo is social coding. So it's where a group of people who want to learn about coding come together. And the way the dojo is organized gives folks an opportunity to learn together. Um, So the reason I set up the London Python Code Dojo is because I was coming to Python from a .NET background. Um, and I wanted to meet other Python developers uh, so I could learn from them, really. Uh, The way a Code Dojo works is quite simple. Um, It was invented in Paris, and the Parisian rules are that there are two people sat at the front. There's a pilot and a co-pilot. The pilot uh, makes the unit test pass, um, given Mm. a particular computing problem, and then writes the next unit test, the pilot sits back in the audience, the co-pilot becomes the pilot and the new co-pilot comes out of the audience and they continue their test driven development based task, whatever yeah. that might be. Yeah. And the only person who's allowed us to interrupt the pilot is the co-pilot and mm. it's supposed to uh, encourage thoughtful discussion. Um, and mm-hmm. also, you know, when you're learning to drive, your driving instructor goes, Now, there, Mr. Tollivy, you know, tell me what you're thinking as we're driving down the main road. And you give them a kind of a stream of thoughts so that they can see that you're doing the right thing. You know, okay, there's a zebra mm-hmm. crossing coming up. I'm going to check my mirrors. There's nothing behind me, so I'm going to brake and blah, 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 blah. So this sort of conversation out loud, thinking out loud is encouraged. Uh, we did that for about two sessions at the London Python Code Dojo. And, um, Our audience couldn't sit on their hands and suggestions were being shouted out from the floor as it were and so we ripped up the rule book and uh what we did instead was something a little bit akin to uh, how i might run a a a class-based music composition workshop where folks split into groups and they're all composing a similar piece of music and then you all come back for a performance at the end and you can compare and contrast as a listening exercise what your compositions are and so the london rules of the code dojo are we all vote at the beginning on a on suggested problems and the winner is the problem that everybody's going to solve we split up into groups of about 5 each and then there's an hour Um, where people in their groups try and solve that problem or create an answer. And these problems can range from anything like fizzbuzz, Roman numeral calculators, to, uh, you know, can you create a game using this gaming API? You know, how far can you get in just an hour? You know, how how quickly Mm. can you consume the docs and things like that? And after that hour, um, we encourage people to always share the laptop around for the group. And we say that uh, if you're a beginner, your job is to ask questions. And if you're an experienced programmer, your job is to answer questions. And if the person who you've answered doesn't understand what's going on, that's your problem. You've not been the good mentor or got your thought processes clear enough to be able to give uh, a good account of what it is that this person needs to be able to um to, to do the thing that's needed in the dojo. So we're helping people practice their mentoring skills and explaining skills because let's face it, we spend half our time writing documentation or explaining our code to colleagues. So it's a good skill to practice this. <laughs> um, and at the end, the best bit of the dojo is that we all come together and we show our disasters uh <laughs> to each other and we say we fail with sympathy. And sometimes Um, sometimes everybody gets a working solution other times nobody does Uh, Mm. and you know yet more times everybody's done it in a slightly different way but it doesn't matter what that combination is we're always going to learn something fun or interesting uh, Mm. by comparing and contrasting Um, and because everybody's head is in the same problem space we're all trying to do a roman numeral calculator or fizzbuzz or blah 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 whatever it might be we've kind of you can deep dive into the code immediately because you don't need to explain the concepts or where the gotchas are because we've all encountered them over the last year. So that's, that's the code dojo and I ran it for about four or five years on my own. And then other people joined, um, we call them the cat herders because <laughs> it's like herding cats running a code dojo. Um, I, I left cause you know, my life moved on and I've got a family and other things. Um, and uh, I guess You know, we're just emerging from COVID now, aren't we? Um, You know, I hope that the dojo uh, happens again in real life because uh, I can tell you it's really good fun. And um, it's a really great way of sharing knowledge and of practicing a whole bunch of coding skills that can't be exercised in any other sort of way.
0: Hmm. And do you find there are still lots of benefits when you move beyond the, the beginner level? There's... Uh, oh
1: oh it's not just... okay yeah. so when the co- when the dojo really works is when you've got a, you know 30 professional programmers they, they've all just done a full day of work you, you all mm. turn up and we usually start with a pizza and a beer or something like that everybody's relaxed and then the code flows and because these are you know good developers um or they're developers from different languages trying to get into python for instance like i was um You pick up wrinkles, you watch mistakes happen, or you learn, oh, there's a module that does that. Why didn't I know that? I'll use that for work because I've just got exactly that problem. You know, it's that sort of a knowledge sharing. And it's also good because if you've got, you know, um, experienced coders who are working as um, exceptional mentors it's giving a role model to you know experienced developers who are perhaps in the middle of their career or at the beginning of their career it's giving them a role model for well actually this is how you explain code <laughs> mm. uh this is how you support somebody who's not familiar with a code base. This is how you might explain this very difficult concept of, I don't know, metaclasses in Python or something like that. I don't know. Um, not that we would ever do that because you shouldn't really use metaclasses in Python except for some very specific reasons. But the point is, is that I went to the dojo and I learned that about metaclasses because we I found that there was an opportunity to encounter that learning um, opportunity so um yeah it, it's it's a great way of if you are an experienced developer really stretching yourself as well mm. um, so yeah i recommend it organize yeah. yourself a dojo it's good fun yeah yeah
0: it sounds like a good alternative to like sort of the hack day or a good well, way to kind of like format that <laughs>
1: Yeah, or the but, brown bags where somebody from some team that you've never heard of comes along and shows you their latest project, and you know, everybody politely claps at the end. Um, it's it, you know, the, the thing about a dojo is that you're sitting there and you're doing stuff, and you yeah. can't sit still. You, you've got to contribute, and that poses its own challenges because there might be people there who are less confident at in in those situations, and this is where we mm-hmm. need folks like. The annas of this world who are, have a gift for um, welcoming people and making people feel at home, and also being exceptional technologists themselves, and providing mm-hmm. sort of a role model, as it were, um, for, for for these folks, it, it helps helps them eased into that sort of situation. But also for those mm-hmm. folks who are, you know, uh, advanced users who who really don't want to hear for a 10th time why test driven development is awesome because they've been doing it for the last 20 years you know they, they, they can actually engage with a with, with mm. something worthwhile the stretch them as well
0: yeah and it makes me think of the difference between uh sort of the what's it socratic uh learning and what is was it didactic or something like yes. the the fact you have to be active and that's the way that yes. you actually engage the brain and form the those new neural pathways that actually mean that learning is taking place
1: well plutarch has a great if we're on the classical world here uh, oh, plutarch God. has a great uh, turn of phrase where he says you know the mind is not a vessel to be filled which is the didactic method uh, but mm. a fire to be kindled which is the socratic mm. one you know socrates is famous because he would always ask the questions and needle people to sort of figure out you know just Let's dig a bit further let's dig a bit further and by questioning and uh, engaging with the problem uh, you actually learn something